Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we had a very special guest. We were joined by Stephanie Cohen, the global co-head of consumer and wealth management and a member of the management committee at Goldman Sachs. Prior to assuming her current role, Stephanie was the firm's chief strategy officer, where she drove strategy, M&A, strategic investing, and partnerships. She led launch with GS, Goldman Sachs' $1 billion investment to increase access to capital and facilitate connections for women, Black, Latinx, and other diverse entrepreneurs and investors, as well as GS Accelerate, the firm's in-house innovation engine. In addition to serving in a variety of roles in the investment banking division throughout her career. If that's not enough, Stephanie serves on the boards of College Spring, Quill.org, and is a trustee for the board of the Economics Club of New York. We discussed many topics, including her career trajectory and advice, innovation within large firms, supporting disadvantaged communities, the growth of their consumer business, and how one can make an impact in finance, both at scale and on individuals. Stephanie had some incredible insights to share, and it was a real treat to have her. So without further delay, we bring you Stephanie Cohen. Ross, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm actually sitting in New York City. We're, we're headed into the holidays, and I, it's fantastic to, to see the city with, with all the lights and getting ready for the holiday celebration. I'm thrilled to hear it. You know, I've heard some naysayers say that New York and San Francisco are doomed um, after COVID, but I, I've seen and heard a lot of good things about New York since the recovery. Um, Stephanie, I want to dive right in because we have limited time and I have a thousand questions to ask you. Um, so I want to jump right in to, to set the stage for our audience. Um, you've served in a number of roles at Goldman Sachs for the better part of your 20-year career, 20-plus year career. Can you start by sharing a little bit of your background and how you got to the role you're in today and what your role today is? I started at Goldman Sachs in 1999 as an analyst in the mergers and acquisitions department in New York. I came to Goldman Sachs from the University of Illinois. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I was a competitive figure skater growing up, and I found myself on Wall Street as an analyst. And I actually fell in love with what we do at Goldman Sachs in terms of helping clients do transactions that are really important to the future success of their company and to their employees. And so I worked in investment banking for 18 years. I spent a bunch of time in New York. I moved to San Francisco. I came back to New York. And then the last job I had in investment banking was I ran our financial sponsor M&A team. And then I became our chief strategy officer. So I did strategy M&A, strategic investing and partnerships for Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was basically my client. So I went from working with outside clients to working with Goldman Sachs as a client. And then about a year ago, I became the co-head of consumer and wealth management. And that business is the business inside Goldman Sachs that works with individuals. We have an advisor-led private wealth management business. We have a business that works with corporates to help their employees with financial wellness. And then we have our digital consumer banking platform. Stephanie, a prolific career. And you know, I'm a bit cheeky saying that you spent the better part of your career at Goldman because you've spent your entire career at Goldman Sachs. 
Um, I want to ask, you know, in, in, in a growing professional culture of jumping from firm to firm after two to three years, um, that I think a lot of Gen X and the boomers lament. Um, I would love to know more about your decision to stay at Goldman Sachs for as long as you have. Is there anything that you know you can point to in the environment at the firm that you think played into your decision to commit for as long as you have? Why GS for over 20 years? Ross, I love that you asked it as a decision because it is a decision. And so that's the right way to think about it. And I think it's the right way to approach a career. And so the reason I stay at Goldman Sachs is because of the people. It's the people inside of Goldman Sachs, but it's also the amazing people we get to interact with outside of Goldman Sachs. We have an incredible ecosystem of clients and customers that we get the chance to interact with. And in addition to those great people who I'm learning from every single day, the other thing is I constantly be able to learn by doing different things. So I walked you through my career. I started in investment banking. I lived in New York and San Francisco where the client base is quite different. And then I was able to have the strategy job, and now I run consumer and wealth management. And so, yes, I have stayed inside of Goldman Sachs, but I have moved around a lot. And I think that's one of the fantastic things about a business like Goldman Sachs. One, we do a lot of different things all over the world, but on top of that, we're constantly changing. So we've been around 152 years, but we look nothing like what we looked like 152 years ago. And so I think when people ask the question, they're kind of assuming in their head that I've been sitting in the same seat for the 22 years that I've been at Goldman Sachs. And that's obviously very far from the truth. I have so many questions to ask about how you have been a figurehead and really a pioneer in the firm's innovation. And I think for, before I get there, I will say that next time you're in San Francisco, we all miss you. Um, ex- happy to host you and excited to see you next time you come out to the Bay Area. Um, I would love to see you. And I, I was in the <laughs> Bay Area last week. It's it's a place that I go regularly. It's, it's really important actually from my perspective for, for me to travel and see our people and our clients all over the world. It's, it's the best way to learn, actually, and see the world from other people's perspective. Thanks, Stephanie. I'd love to segue into talking about innovation in finance and how you've spearheaded so much innovation at an enormous firm like Goldman Sachs, at a bulge bracket firm. Um, there's a couple that I want to talk about first. would love to talk about GS Accelerate. Um, you have held a key role in building this organization within the organization. I won't spoil it. Can you tell us about GS Accelerate, what it is, how it started, your role in that process? I'd love to do that. So one of the first things that we actually did when I became chief strategy officer was to create GS Accelerate. And the idea behind it was that we didn't have an ideas problem. We had an execution problem. And so we had lots of ideas inside of Goldman Sachs. We have more than 40,000 people all over the world, and they have great ideas. We hire enormously talented people. They're interacting with people all over the place. And so they have great ideas. But the question is, inside an organization that's as large and as complicated as Goldman Sachs, how do you actually get it done? And so what we wanted to do is say, Goldman Sachs is open to new ideas. And so we made it easy for people to submit those ideas. And so we've gotten almost 2,000 ideas from, call it 3,000 people inside of of Goldman Sachs. And we've turned those into actually businesses inside of the firm. So from those ideas, we've had 17 projects that have basically moved forward. So 17 initiatives. We have seven live products that are out there, whether serving our people internally or serving clients directly. And so it's this amazing opportunity for our people to be entrepreneurs inside the organization and 
for us to do things where we can experiment. And that's the last and most important point I'll make around this. One of the most important things with GS Accelerate was in addition to telling our people we're open to new ideas, we also wanted to make sure it was very clear that we want people to experiment and be willing to fail. And so as we were doing GS Accelerate, we made sure that if we funded an opportunity and we worked through it and realized that it didn't make sense for it to move forward, we would celebrate when we made that decision. So instead of if your idea just didn't go forward, that being a failure, that was actually a win because we had looked at something, we had spent time on it, and we learned a lot from doing that, but maybe we decided not to do it. We've had a bunch of things that have been successful, like I walked through, but we've had a bunch of things that we've decided not to do, and we've learned a ton from all of that. And I think that means that all over the organization, not just in GS Accelerate, that's happening because people see that that's something that we're celebrating inside of Goldman Sachs. I can see the San Francisco in you as you talk about the GS Accelerate process. I think it's so wonderful to hear about this fail fast, learn, iterate, innovate culture that you developed through GS Accelerate. Would love to hear more about if there were any challenges that you faced in that process, right? In an organization full of tens of thousands of people, how do you reach all of them and create this cultural shift at such scale to help so many people take risks and innovate? I think it's a really good question. So there are a lot of challenges that we had and a lot of things that we learned. And so I'll, I'll take you through a bunch of them. One, what we realized originally was that people felt that it was easier in headquarters to do it versus in some of the regional locations, whether that was in London or Hong Kong or in some of the other offices around the US or in other parts of the world. And so as we were working on this over the years, we made it a lot easier for people in those other offices to participate. It was always open to everyone, but they felt like they didn't have access to the same resources, the same people to walk around and get views on their idea. And so we made that a lot easier. By the way, COVID made that so much easier because of what happened as it relates to people's comfort with things like Zoom. And so it was the great equalizer as it relates to that. But that was certainly something that was challenging upfront. The second thing, that we realized was we originally did it once a year, meaning it was a big announcement. You can send in your ideas. We had a deadline. And so there's something good about that because there's something good about a deadline and having a deadline actually makes people get something done. But the problem is that innovation doesn't just happen on one calendar date. And so the time period was too long between the various submissions and we'd have people who have ideas and we have them kind of waiting around to submit their idea for the next cycle. And so we now have rolling submissions. The third thing I'll say is that when we first started Accelerate, the organization was designed differently. And so we had situations where, for example, we were doing growth equity in multiple parts of Goldman Sachs. And what we've done over the course of the last couple of years is organized Goldman Sachs by clients. And so we serve corporates and governments, institutions, individuals. We've basically organized Goldman Sachs based on that. And so at the beginning of GS Accelerate, there were more things that needed to be done through GS Accelerate because they were happening in all these different pockets of Goldman Sachs. But once we actually got Goldman Sachs organized with the client as the organizing mechanism, there were things that no longer needed to happen inside of GS Accelerate and could just happen directly inside of the business. So it was really important that we were nimble in terms of 
how we thought about what the ideal projects were for the Accelerate. That makes so much sense. And I appreciate you walking us through some of the learnings and then what you did in response to those learnings. It really helps frame that uh, in, in a really insightful way. A lot of the principles that you've mentioned so far, fail fast, be nimble. You know, these are what I think a lot of people would typify as startup principles or a startup culture. I think Goldman Sachs and it's over 150 years has developed a reputation. And I think all of investment banking has developed a reputation really for a strict hierarchical structure. Um, how I'm curious how this startup culture that you're cultivating, how you've meshed that with the, the hierarchy that exists in such a large organization. Yeah, the one thing I'm going to disagree with, having lived inside of Goldman Sachs for 22 years, is that we are not hierarchical inside of Goldman. The reality is that if you looked at how Goldman Sachs operates, we start with the customer and we work backwards. So we are absolutely customer and client obsessed inside of Goldman Sachs. And hierarchy tends not to work if that's your way of being, because what happens is clients need you to do something. And the question is, who's going to help? Like, it doesn't matter what seniority that person is, who's going to help? And, and I learned that really early in my career. So I started in the investment bank, in the M&A group, and it was a completely flat organization. We were working on things for clients, and the senior person or the client went to the person who had the answer, no matter what their title was or what their age was or how long they had been at Goldman Sachs. And so my view actually is culturally, we're a very flat organization. And by the way, I do think that's very different than some of our peers who have grown up with a different focus. In an investment banking and trading organization, the culture is actually very flat. Um, the thing, though, that was very different is, and as you think about things like consumer, we had never been in the consumer space, right? We had the only individuals that we had been serving were ultra high net worth individuals, which actually in many cases behave more like institutions. So I actually think as we embarked on the consumer business, the thing that has been most different for us is that it's a different type of client than who we have served historically. And, and I'm sure we'll get to it. The reason why we felt like we could serve that client was because the world changed and you could really serve them in a technology first way in a way that really drew on Goldman Sachs's strengths rather than things that have not been our strengths, which is we don't have a branch network. We don't have thousands of branches all over the United States of America, which is how people have historically been served. I appreciate you disagreeing with the the, broad, the the reputation that I may or may not be misciting. So for all of our listeners, if you have this belief that Goldman Sachs is the strict hierarchy, you've heard it from Stephanie directly. That is just not the case. Um, so take it from the source. So Stephanie, I appreciate you helping dispel uh, what could be fallacious, salacious rumors. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Stephanie, I think you actually segued right into uh, what I was hoping to, to move into next, which is the growth of the consumer business of Marcus. I have a number of questions about Marcus. I've really respected the work that the team has done. Prior to Scholars of Finance full-time, I was actually at SoFi and I was our, our PMM on the leadership team launching SoFi Money, our, the Marcus competitor. And I'll tell you this, I respected the work that Marcus did so much. Can you, for the listeners who aren't aware of what Marcus is, can you begin by just explaining Marcus as a business, how it came to form where it's at today? We started Marcus, which we now call Goldman Sachs Marcus, the consumer business about five years ago. And the idea was that we felt that consumers were not being served. And we did it. We actually went out to call it 10,000 consumers and talked to them about their financial lives. 
And we found out that they were not being served, their needs were not met, that they'd rather go to the dentist than to their bank. And so we felt like there was a real place for us to make a difference to millions and now tens of millions, hundreds of millions of consumers. So we embarked on building a consumer business. And like every startup, what I'm about to describe as our strategy was not what we started with. So we started doing consumer loans and then we did deposits and we then did the Apple card. And now we're going to get to what I'm going to talk about, which is our consumer strategy. So today the business has round numbers, 10 million customers, over $100 billion in deposits, $10 billion in loans, $1.5 billion in revenue. We are very excited by the business that we are building and we believe that we're just getting started. The business today is two self-reinforcing strategies. The first one is Goldman Sachs Marcus. Today we do savings, lending, invest, and insights. We're working on checking. At that point in time, we can be someone's primary bank on their phone. We can take their direct deposit. We can do their bill pay. We want to take all those capabilities plus card and embed them in the ecosystems of our partners. And that's the second part of the strategy. The best example of that is what we're doing with Apple. We also are going to launch with General Motors. Our view is that there are many people who don't want to go to their bank. They want their bank to come to them. They want to experience financial services and ecosystems that they love and they trust. And we're happy to be that platform to facilitate that. Everything is built on a singular technology platform. It's obviously all digital first. And so we believe we're coming to this with very unique competitive advantages. We've been around over 150 years. We have, you know, call it round numbers of one and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. We have a brand that people trust. And then we have this blank sheet of paper from a technology perspective, but we also have a blank sheet of paper from a product design perspective. So we're not beholden to how products have been designed historically. So if you look at how the Apple card is designed, for example, it has a lot of features that no one else has because we didn't start with what exists and just try to tweak that. We started with what does the customer want? How do we make it easy for our customers to make payments? How do we make it easy for customers to see the consequence of not making their full payment? And so there are a bunch of things that are embedded in our product that other people don't have because we started with a clean slate. And so we're really excited to help people manage their financial lives. Recently, read a statistic that less than 75% of, sorry, almost 75% of consumers believe that their banks have nothing to do with their financial success. And we don't think that's a great place to be. So we intend to be the bank that's going to actually help people achieve financial success. Stephanie, even hearing you you say that, I can see why you've had such a fast rise through Goldman Sachs. I feel inspired even listening, hearing that, um, how pro-consumer you are, even the statistics that you're citing. Um, I will say uh, when the Apple card, uh, when the Apple card got released, I was impressed. I was very impressed <laughs> um, as we we saw that get released. Um, I thought it was exceptionally well done, at least in my opinion. Um, by the way, we are really excited about what's broadly happening in consumer finance. We believe that there are lots of companies that are doing a great job of putting the customer first and trying to fundamentally change how people experience financial services. And there are lots of there's lots of room. It's a really big market. And so we're excited about where the world is headed and we're, we're thrilled that we can be one of those players really driving change. 
I'm so grateful you say that because I think in the consumer space, there is this, I think, false notion that there is scarcity, but there are billions of people who need to be served. Uh, the, the total adjustable market is massive. Um, I actually wanted to ask a question. I think that actually is a really good segue about how your team at Goldman thought about launching the group without losing its competitive edge in its core banking business and other core business lines. Because I think on, I could only imagine what those conversations were like. On one hand, you look at an organization like Chime, who has a fraction of the deposits and the customers valued at billions of dollars. Um, there's this huge market opportunity. Um, but as we know, if you try to do everything uh, excellently, you'll do nothing well, right? You have to have focus and prioritization. So I really want to understand what that journey was like thinking through how to launch this in a way that didn't spread the firm thin and that didn't take away from other areas in the organization? Of course, there was a lot of debate before we launched into the consumer business. The one thing is when we started to launch, and I said this before, we didn't launch with Stephanie's large speech about you know, all these different things we were doing and the two self-reinforcing strategies, right? We launched as a personal loan business and then we got into the deposits business by buying the GE deposit platform. And so it's really important because I think this is true of a lot of startups. After you've done a lot of things, you can talk about this much bigger ecosystem that you've built, but it starts with one thing. And the one thing that we started with was that we believe that we had competitive advantage and that there was a real consumer need. The other thing that I think it's important is there's much more connection to the overall Goldman Sachs business than I think people understand. One, from just a practical perspective, the deposits we raise in the consumer business are funding other parts of Goldman Sachs, and that makes other parts of Goldman Sachs more competitive. And so I think that's really important for, for people to generally understand. The second thing is that we pride ourselves in being world-class at technology. And we don't mean world-class from a financial institution perspective. We mean world-class. If you think about our trading business, for example, the technology systems that are required to run that trading system are some of the most sophisticated in the world. And we've been doing that for decades. And so we believe we really do have competitive advantage as it relates to technology. And then the third thing is, if you look at the strategy in the consumer business, that second strategy is about working with corporates to help us help them provide financial product to their customer. And so if you think about Apple or General Motors, those are companies that we've had relationships with really long for a really long period of time. And so there is real connectivity between what we're doing in the consumer business and what we're doing in other parts of the firm. And I think we have been thoughtful about which parts we're going to focus on, who our clients are going to be. I think we have really thought about where are the places we have competitive advantage. The last thing I'll say is that it's not by accident that the consumer and wealth management businesses are together. There is a connection there. And you look at the Marcus Invest product that we launched, the asset allocation that's done in the Marcus Invest product is the same asset allocation that's done in our private wealth management business. And no one else can really say that. They're getting the same asset allocation, the same people that think about asset allocation for our wealth management clients. Those same people are doing the asset allocation for the consumer business. And then the consumer business is building what we hope is a world-class digital experience. And we think the people in our wealth management business want that as well. And so there is real connectivity to a business that has been around inside of Goldman Sachs for decades. You've been involved in so many deals at the firm. You've been involved in so many new initiatives. 
do you and does the team at Goldman have a framework for thinking about or assessing big bets? Because, you know, with Accelerate, you still have all of these ideas. Uh, Marcus was obviously a large bet. Um, how does the firm think about that? And what I'm picking up is, where is our synergy within the core business? How is this additive to our consumers, right? How does this grow our ability to make an impact on our existing customer base and be more competitive? Those are some things I've heard. Are there other, are those accurate A and B? Are there other principles that you and the firm sort of adhere to as you're, you're making these large bets? From the highest level, the way that we think about it is what's the strategy? And then should we build, should we buy, should we partner, should we invest? And so I think it's really important to level set there, which is what is our strategy? What are we trying to achieve? And in figuring out what our strategy is, we think about what is the winning aspiration? Like, how would you think about if you if it actually worked, what it would look like? Where are you going to play? So what is the specific segment you're going to focus in? And then how are you going to win? And then what are the management systems and capabilities that you need in order to do that? And by the way, there's a loop that keeps happening when you do those strategy questions, because you have to make sure you have the management systems and capabilities that are going to allow you to win and that how, how you're going to win actually works in the market that you're targeting and that the winning aspiration is actually something worth going after. So there's a strategy loop that happens in all of that. Once you figure that out, you need to figure out, can you build those capabilities? Do you have to buy them? Do you have to partner with someone? And so there's all these things that happen. It's not like a random, like we're going to go buy this thing and then we'll back solve into, does that make sense um, for the business? The the second thing I'll say is that we do math, like Goldman, like I was a mergers and acquisitions banker, Goldman Sachs, a financial institution. Like we do this for a living with clients. Like, of course we do math around, you know, do the returns make sense? But I also think it's really important for people to hear that we are very long-term focused. You know, we, we built our asset management business. It took a long time for that to be an attractive business. And so we are absolutely long-term focused, but we're doing the math on whether or not what we're doing makes sense. But we also want to make sure we do the math holistically. You can get yourself in trouble if you do the math too narrowly around what you're doing. And so we think about things from a holistic client perspective, from a holistic business perspective. And so we are, we're quite rigorous in everything that we do, but we also understand what it means to invest for the long time. And then the last thing I'll say is we we believe that we are world-class risk manager. Like we've been in the trading businesses for you know a century and a half. And so I think we have a good culture as it relates to understanding this is how it could go really well. This is how it could go really bad. Here's the most likely case. And so not thinking about things in a black and white way. Stephanie, can I ask you one more follow-on question here? Um, about the, the strategic decisions. Um, I appreciate you sharing, you know, where do you want to play? How are you going to win? What are the systems that help you win? You mentioned a couple of times the what, really, what are we going to do? And I think, uh, and as you, you and I talked about a little bit before this call, you know, our mission here at Scholars of Finance is to ensure that we send off an entire generation of future investors and financial executives with a, a higher sense of purpose, you know, purpose greater than themselves. They want to make a difference in the world through finance and B with clear values and principles that they are aware of, they've decided, um, and that they adhere to, right. Going into for the right reasons and doing the right thing along the way. And one of the questions our students often ask is, well, how does finance make an impact? How does finance make the world better? 
And the reason I share all this is because the, the question I'm curious to hear your perspective on is, you know, for you personally, as you're in managing committee, advocating for new businesses, new ideas, new strategy, and there's that conversation about the what, what, where do we want to play? And the math aside, um, how do you think about the impact that Goldman makes as a firm? And how does that play into your decisioning process, your strategic decision-making process? I have a strong belief that this is not a trade-off, that they're one thing, because this is ultimately the most attractive businesses. So I'm going to say a couple of things. One, I believe that our people want to be valued members of a winning team on an inspired mission. And an inspired mission piece is really important. That's why people want to show up every day. Two, I think that helping people better manage their financial lives is not just the right thing to do. It is really good from a business perspective. And so I'm going I'm to go into the consumer business specifically for a second and give you like very specific product design things that may look like in the short term are not as good for business, but we think over time creates a much healthier customer base, which ultimately is going to build us a better business. So I talked to you about the Apple card. So what we created on the Apple card is that when you go to pay your bill or when you look at where you sit from a statement perspective, you see a payment wheel. The payment wheel assumes that you're going to pay your full bill. You have to move the payment wheel to pay less than your full bill. It starts going from green to red and it tells you how much you owe in interest. What we see from our customers is one, we make it easier for them to pay. They pay multiple times per month. And that helps people better manage their finances. And two, people just tend to pay more than industry averages. And so in theory, that means there's less interest income that comes through the P&L. But that's better for the customer. That's better for them to manage their financial life. And so we all in our loans business, we set up what's called direct disbursement. So that when you take out a personal loan, we'll actually give you a lower interest rate if you directly pay off the debts, which is why you're sending out this personal loan. And so we see our customers, I think two thirds of our customers' credit scores go up after taking a loan out with, with Goldman Sachs Marcus. And so there's all these things we build in there. And our people, I think, are happier to come to work are more motivated. I think we attract better talent because we're building product that is really helping consumers. And in the end world, they're they're healthier. We're going to have more. We're going to have more and better customers because we're doing things that that are, that are helping them. And so I don't think this is a trade off. I think that making financial product that's better for the world is actually the best business. The other thing I'll say is because I came from the kind of institutional corporate side of the business. And so in the consumer side of the business, I think this idea of are we helping people is kind of is more straightforward to talk about. But the capital allocation is actually really important. Um, And we haven't talked about it, but when I was in the strategy sheet, we created launch with GS, which was our commitment to closing the diversity investment gap. It's now a billion dollar commitment. And our view was that as an entirely for-profit initiative, because we felt that underrepresented minorities and women were, were, were misallocated capital. They were not allocated enough capital. 
And in a world that's awash in capital, getting capital to a place that's underallocated is actually really good business. But of course, it's good for the world because then there's more founders who are diverse and they create different companies and that's better for the world. And there's all these things that are great, but it's also going to deliver really great returns. And so my view is that finance has a really important place to play in capital allocation and helping people manage their financial lives and that doing the right thing is really good business. I love it, Stephanie. I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate you sharing that uh, with our listeners today. Because um, oddly, there are people who, who don't see it that way. And, and I say oddly, because I think what you just shared, the logic feels so obvious and so apparent. There's this win, 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 the pie grows, everyone wins. Um, and I, I actually really appreciate you bringing up launch with GS because that was actually what I wanted to segue into talking about next. Um, you have personally helped lead uh, the launch of launch with, with Goldman Sachs, which is Goldman's, for people who don't know, $500 million commitment to invest in companies and investment managers with diverse leadership, like you mentioned. Can you talk more about that group and how it came to be in that process and some of the impact and results you've seen? Absolutely. So over three years ago, we created launch with GS. And what we saw was, and the numbers today are over 80% of venture capital dollars goes to all male founded teams and about 2% goes to black and Latinx teams. That is a massive misallocation of capital. And so we saw that and we said, we want to close that gap. And we also believed that investing behind it was incredibly attractive. You, you sit in Silicon Valley, everyone talks about there's too much capital. It's hard to find good investments. You have all of these people, which by the way, research shows that inclusive and diverse teams outperform. So you have a group of people where they say they'll outperform and capital is not allocated to them. So we said, we're going to invest behind it. We started with 500. We're actually now committed to up to a billion. We've invested called $700 million. And what we did was we actually embedded it directly in our investing teams because we wanted to make sure that we were taking this ethos across all of our investing businesses. And so we set out to invest in companies, but we also set out to invest in investment managers and to build an ecosystem. And the reason was that, well, investing directly in companies is fun and exciting and really important. If you invest behind diverse investment managers, they themselves invest behind diverse founders. And so it has a multiplier effect. So we're very committed to, in addition to doing companies, to also doing investment managers. And then we created an ecosystem because when you're an investor, you say no all the time. It's just how the world works. There's just a limited number of companies and managers that you can invest in. But there were many of those people that we wanted to help. And so we tried to create an e ecosystem. And so that actually is probably the thing that we're most proud of. Well, we've invested in great companies and we've delivered, you know, so far really great returns. We've, we invested in companies like Bento Box and Billy, where you've already seen outcomes happen. Um, we feel that what we did with the ecosystem has a really lasting impact on top of all the investing that we've done. I love it. And I wanted to say for on behalf of all of Scholars of Finance that we appreciate, we're just grateful that Goldman has, there are a lot of firms who talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, creating racial equity, creating an impact in these ways. Um, and they talk about it a lot. Um, but to hear that Goldman Sachs has already invested and deployed $700 million, I think is incredibly motivating and inspiring. And I hope that others who are listening will follow suit in some way. And I actually want to pivot the conversation a little bit more 
uh, deeper into this notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, in speaking to your chief of staff, she had said that something that you've mentioned before is that you care very much uh, at Goldman Sachs and you personally about ensuring that the work at the firm is equitable, that you're serving women, underrepresented communities. In addition to this massive effort, right, we're putting your money literally where your mouth is with launch with GS, how else has Goldman Sachs made really tangible progress on these fronts at, at helping serve women in underserved communities? Yeah, I think we do a good job of embedding it directly in our business. So launch with GS is an example. One million black women is another example, which is a $10 billion capital commitment to, to help black women, where by the way, the wealth gap is 90 percent. And then the one digression on one million black women I'll make is that we know that inside of Goldman Sachs, we don't have all of the answers. So one of the great things we did with one million black women is that we, the very beginning, we went out and basically listened to what the community really needed. And so I think that's a hallmark of how we've tried to work with underrepresented communities, which is to listen to what they need. The other thing I'll say is that you know, the pandemic has been a tragedy um, all around the world and for so many people. And one of the places where I think we've been really able to help is we created a program called 10,000 Small Businesses over a decade ago. And that's where we work with now over 10,000 small businesses all over the US and, and now also in Europe. And we in addition to capital, we are bringing to them the capabilities, like helping them think through their businesses. And one of the things that we did was that we really showed up during the pandemic, obviously with capital, but also with helping people work through what was a really hard time. And if you listen to small businesses and what it was like to deal with the pandemic, one of the things that really determined whether a small business survived or not was whether or not they had someone to talk to about what they should do with their business, how they should think about how to handle what was going on. And the 10,000 small business community, those people certainly had access to Goldman Sachs, but they also had access to each other. So now being able to travel around and see people and actually speak to those business owners, that really made a difference for all of them. And they disproportionately survived the pandemic. And so that's something that we're really proud of in terms of the way that Goldman Sachs has been helping communities. I've got to say, when you first and foremost, I think the commitments that Goldman has made are absolutely incredible. And when you talk about what you heard talking to small business owners, I, I actually feel seen, which I, I feel like is kind of a very modern uh, way to frame this. But um, Scholars of Finance, we're a startup nonprofit organization. You know, we're I just stepped in full time a little over two years ago, and when six months later COVID struck. Um, I was suddenly staring down, we felt like staring down the barrel of a gun, <laughs> right? Just jumping into this nonprofit startup with a little bit of cash, small business, really, um, and not knowing what to do as it seemed the philanthropic um, sector might tighten. And we've been okay because we've had leaders at Goldman Sachs and other firms who have given us advice, who have helped us get through that. Because I know another one of the ways that your chief of staff has said that you really enjoy making an impact is on an individual basis with the people at your firm, the people you work with through mentorship. And I wanted to ask you how you make yourself more approachable when so many young people are taught not to bother senior leaders, even when they hear, you know, it's a flat organizational structure, um, they still are afraid. So I think to all of our students listening, what would you tell them about approaching senior leaders? And to the other senior leaders listening, what might you tell them about making themselves more approachable? 
one, I hope our people never feel that we're not approachable or that the other leaders around me are not approachable. I think it's really important for senior leaders to show up as human beings to be authentic. And so we try really hard to do that. So my co-head Tucker and I, we spend a lot of time trying to be as casual as possible, as real as possible. So one of the things we do is we send a weekly podcast out to our division. And the benefit of that versus some sort of email is that they feel like they're sitting in the office with us. They feel like they're part of our conversation. And so I think that makes us more human and more approachable. So there's a bunch of things that we do that make us show up as real people because people want to hang out with other real people. Um, so I think that's really important. The The second thing for kind of all of the, uh, the people listening who are students is I wouldn't be particularly afraid about reaching out, be respectful of people's time, but I wouldn't be particularly afraid. I think it's really important that when people reach out to me, I respond. And that doesn't mean that every time I can do everything, my team will tell you I say yes way too often. But one, I enjoy doing it. Two, it's important. Three, I actually really learn a lot. The only way to figure out what's going on in the organization is actually talk to people in the organization and not have everything filtered. And so it's really important. But even if someone reaches out to me and I'm not the right person for them to talk to or I'm traveling and I don't have time, I get them to someone who they can speak to, who can get them the answer they want or can help them with what they need help with. And so I think that's really important. The reality is that it doesn't take that long for a senior leader. If someone has an issue, they can tell you what their problem is. You can send them to the right person. And that took you like three seconds. And you can probably save that person hours, which is really good for you and your business. And you've also taught them that it's that they can they can ask questions and get really good answers. And so I, I actually think it's super important for, for senior leaders to be perceived as approachable. Thanks, Stephanie. We only have a few minutes left. So I'd love to dive into some quick fire final questions, if that's okay with you. Go for it. All right. First, um, I think you've mentioned before publicly that one does not have to work in a city like New York to make a, an impact in finance. Um, you recently moved to Texas. Um, would love to hear the decision-making process behind that move and also how you think about building a diverse team across the country and the globe. Yeah. So we have our people all over the place. Yes, we have a bunch of people in New York City, but we have more than 100 offices. Like We have people everywhere. And by the way, our clients and our customers are everywhere. And I think it's really important for us to meet our clients and customers where they are and to understand their perspective. And I think that's hard to do that if we all live in one location. The second thing is we actually have thousands of people in Dallas, and it's really important that our people believe that there's no ceiling on your career outside of New York. And I believe that. Our senior leadership believes that. And the best way to prove that is to go yourself. And so we decided that it made sense for our family for us to move to Dallas. Um, We're really excited about it. My kids love it. We're having a great time. I think it gives you a good perspective on what it's like to not be sitting in the New York office. And by the way, as we talked about before, I've been, I spent a bunch of my career in San Francisco and you said that you could hear San Francisco in my way of thinking. And I think that that's astute because I think that's true. I think that the only way to really learn is to have new experiences and to put yourself in a situation that's more uncomfortable, a place that, you know, isn't natural for you to be in. And so by us showing up in Texas, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I've lived in New York and San Francisco. 
I think we're putting ourselves in a situation that's different. I think that's good for me. It's good for my husband. It's good for my kids. And so we're, we're really excited to be there. Thanks, Stephanie. So there are a lot of listeners who are eager to make an impact in their careers in finance, students, young professionals, senior executives. Um, you know, what is the most important career lessons you've learned or sort of the key, you know, three pieces of advice you'd offer to anyone aspiring to make an impact in their career? You know, me, like what, what, what are the three keys, three key pieces of advice you'd offer me to make an impact in my career? Stay curious. So keep learning, focus on execution, get stuff done. You can have ideas, but you actually have to get stuff done and make the people around you better because you'll be better and everyone will want to work with you. Thanks, Stephanie. And my final question, this is a bit of a layup. Um, we talked about this before the podcast, but you get so many speaking requests and you're incredibly busy. Um, I hope that your team isn't upset with you for taking this podcast interview. I hope that this was a yes that they were all excited about. Um, here you are taking an hour almost to help the scholars of finance community. I'd love to know what stood out to you about our organization and our mission and why might you encourage others to get involved in SOF and, and try to help? So education is really important to me. I feel really lucky. My mom is a teacher and I had great teachers growing up. And I, my first piece of advice was to stay curious and always keep learning. And so this part of your life where you're completely focused on learning, I think is really critical and really sets the stage for what you do after that. And so education is really important to me. It's a great equalizer. It's a way for people from all different backgrounds to really go out and do new things. The second thing is I do believe that finance, capitalism, capital allocation is really important in the world. And by the way, in our fast paced world, it's more important than ever. Now, where capital is going actually tells you a lot about where the world is going. And so this combination of what's of education plus finance, um, it was, I thought it would be a great audience for me, for me to speak to. And I'm really appreciative that you invited me. Stephanie, thank you so much. Um, we're so glad that you came and that you shared your insights and experience with our students, with the investors listening. Hope we get to have you on again sometime to continue the conversation. And just want to thank you again for your time, Stephanie. It's been a delight. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.